0: If you don't know what we're referring to, we are in the book of Revelation. We are in the letters to the seven churches, and specifically we are in the letter to the church of Thyatira, the church in Thyatira, and there is a woman who is called a prophetess, though she is not truly a prophetess, but there's a woman who is leading God's people astray, and and God calls her by the title Jezebel because that brings back to our minds the concept of the Old Testament woman that was so wretched and so uh, sinful and wicked and evil, one of the most evil, wicked people in the entirety of the Bible. And as I thought about Christmas, and I thought about Jezebel, and I thought about how the two are brought together, I thought about the reality that Christmas truly cannot be happy and truly cannot be joyful until we first see it for what it truly is, and that starts with it being a bleak, despairing and hopeless message before we can celebrate with joy the message of christmas we need to understand where it begins and it begins with a message that we sing very often during the christmas season o come o come emmanuel please come and ransom us captives captive israel ransom us we cannot save ourselves we are in captivity that mourns in lonely exile, mourning. Typically don't think of Christmas as mourning over oppressive captivity. And yet that's where the Christmas message begins. And so even though we are in the book of Revelation and in a challenging letter, this letter is is not an easy one to the church in Thyatira. This is a very challenging letter but it really will enable us to get to where we want to get to in the good news of the gospel. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, uh, next week and the following two weeks as we just kind of meditate on the Christmas season and all of the miraculous things that go on and the way that God brought redemption, ransoming us. He brought that to us. So, with that being said, Let's look at the church in Thyatira. Let's finish out this letter and let's do so with an eye past the challenge that Jesus gives to the hope that he gives in repentance through the gospel, which is here. We'll have to find it. We'll have to see it. It's there. But we want to cling to Christ and the satisfaction that we have in him and the hope that we have in him in the gospel. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of later are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my slaves astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Therefore, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, these words are both incredibly hopeful and convicting, joyful and sobering, Beautiful in their promises, but terrifying in their warning and exhortation. God, we want to be addressed by you this morning in a way where we interact with the God of the universe, where your word is spoken to our hearts in such a way where we hear exactly what we need to hear. And I don't know that. I don't know what that is for each and every person here, but you do. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would graciously open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Open our eyes to see what we need to see. That we would be the, the people that are described at the end of this letter that have ears to hear, that have a heart to receive, that have eyes that are open to see. We can't do that on our own, so we, we don't depend on our own skill, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own reasoning. God, we come before you and we fall flat on our face and we ask for help. We ask for divine Assistance. And we do so knowing that you will give that to us. You won't turn us away. You love to give help to your people. So, God, I pray that we would ask with pure motives, that we would ask for the purpose of loving Jesus. Help us this morning, we pray, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Last week, we began by looking in this letter at the greeting. I remember every single letter, every one of these letters that we see in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, they all follow the same pattern. There's a greeting, a description of Christ, a declaration of what Jesus knows, a criticism, a warning, a promise, and an exhortation. So we began last Sunday by looking at the, the greeting to the church in Thyatira, right? And we looked at what the church in Thyatira looked like, and that it was known for its trade guilds, that it was known for uh, kind of its um, system of, of all these different little businesses, that would work together in kind of unionized formats. They all had a deity over the trade guild, so if you wanted to participate in the trade guild, you had to do two things. You had to go to the festival to worship that deity, and then you had to uh, be involved in the idolatry of that festival and the immorality of that festival. These festivals all had... Uh, kind of temple prostitution, even though there weren't really temples around. They had religious prostitution. They had uh, religious sexual immorality. And so if you wanted to be a, a working person in these different trade guilds, you had to go to these festivals. So we asked the question, what do we do? If we want to work and we want to make money and we want to be able to support our family, but we can't be involved in idolatry and immorality, what do we do? And we see a little bit of what they did in tolerating The main uh, person who was teaching these things saw the greeting, first and foremost. Secondly, we saw the description of Christ. There were three things, three little titles, three aspects of who Jesus is. Number one, he is the Son of God. Number two, he has eyes like fire. These are the, the laser beams shining into souls. He sees everything penetrating, omniscience. And then feet of burnished bronze. This is purity. This is every form of impurity has been taken away out of his feet. He is completely holy and he's going forth into impure places. He's making them pure. He's able to bring judgment. He has authority over them. Standing on something gives you the authority over that thing. We have the greeting, the description of Christ, the declaration of what Christ knows. He knows four things. I know your deeds. You can see it uh, in chapter 2 verse 19, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance. Fourfold deeds that they have, or specifically it's two and two. I know your faith and your, your love and your faith, and your love motivates serving people, and your faith motivates your perseverance. But I know that you have these things, and they're growing. They're getting better. But I do have something against you. This is number four, of the criticism. This is where we ended our time last week. This is the criticism. I have something against you, and it's very clear what he has against them. They tolerate Jezebel. They tolerate this woman named Jezebel. They tolerate immorality in their church. Now, we looked, when we ended the church in Pergamum a few weeks ago, we looked at this issue of tolerance, and we specifically looked at the issue in the culture. Tolerance outside of the church, in the culture, in the day and age that we live. Tolerance used to mean I completely disagree with you and I detest what you're saying, but I will fight for your right to be able to say it and it won't change our relationship. I think you're wrong and yet I will still have a relationship with you. Now there's a new tolerance. We've discussed this a little bit in our Sunday school time. There's a new tolerance that has grown in the culture around us through postmodernism, through a number of different things that says it's wrong to say that somebody is wrong. Tolerance now is defined as saying, I have to agree with you. I have to agree with you, which, as D.A. Carson says in a book that I think is very helpful on the subject, the intolerance of tolerance, this new tolerance, uh, it is intellectually confused and it's morally bankrupt. In the culture around us, it's intellectually confused. This new tolerance is intellectually confused because you can't truly speak of tolerance unless you disagree with somebody. You can't tolerate somebody unless you disagree. So to say tolerance means I agree with everything you're doing, then there's no such thing as tolerance because tolerance is fundamentally disagreeing, but being able to love them and honor them. So words have completely lost all of their meaning. It's also morally bankrupt. It claims to be one thing and does the exact opposite. Uh, to be tolerant, you have to say that everybody is right in what they're saying, and then when I come along, or you come along, and I say, no, there is truth, there is right and wrong, and I believe that you're wrong in what you're saying according to the Scriptures, you're wrong. So they say everybody's right except for you because you claim that people are wrong. So therefore, their, their position breaks down morally as well. It thinks it has the high ground, but it's massively intolerant of anybody who disagrees with its views. It's a self-defeating statement. We talked two weeks ago or three weeks ago about how to address this new tolerance in the culture outside of us. And I gave you four things. Number one, we need to love people. Don't go on a hate binge. Don't paint those who disagree with you as demons. Love people. Number two, be prepared to suffer. Don't lash out. Trust Christ, but be prepared to suffer in the days ahead. Number three, know the truth and be prepared to reasonably defend the truth with love. This is 1 Peter chapter 3 verse verse 15. Do this with gentleness and respect, reverence. Uh, Give an answer for the hope that you have within you, but make sure that you know the truth and you're able to give a reasonable response. Number four, compassionately challenge. There's a time to stand up and challenge, and you'll need God's wisdom for when to speak up and when not to speak up. Be wise as serpents, gentle as doves, just like we're studying with the book of Esther. And number five, be happy. Be happy Christians. Don't be gloomy Eeyore Christians that are thinking the days ahead are just going to be terrible and awful and and everything's going to be bad. That might be the case, but we've learned time and time again in the book of Revelation, we can be fearless and faithful to the end without any sense of despairing, without any sense of defeat, Uh, we, we will overcome through Christ. Now, that is outside the church. And I said when we walked through the church in Pergamum, we didn't really look inside the church. And I want to do that this morning because that's the issue here at hand, tolerance inside the church. What does it look like to be tolerant inside the church? Why does Jesus say, the one thing that I have against this church is tolerance? Should we tolerate one another in the church? What should we not tolerate? in the church? What are the issues in the church to battle over? What are the issues in the church that we do not battle over? Let me spend about seven minutes just thinking through tolerance in the church together. Let's reason together over this issue because I believe not only do we see it in the culture around us, tolerance in the culture around us, but there's a new tolerance that's crept into the church as well. There's a new tolerance. How do we live this out? First of all, There is no clear-cut list of things that we battle over and things that we do not. There's no list in the scriptures, this is what we fight about, this is what we don't fight about in the church. Everybody thinks they know what that list is, that's the problem. So everybody thinks, I know what we should be fighting about, but nobody knows what we should be fighting about. We don't fully have an explicit list of this is what you have a hill to die on. These are the things, and you know, just cut and paste. First Kings chapter 8, here's a list of things we fight for. And 2 Corinthians, such and such, this is the list we don't fight. We don't have that list. We have to discern that from the scriptures. Now, we can discern two main categories of things that we tolerate versus not. You can put them into categories of essentials or non-essentials. You can put them into the category of primary and secondary issues. You can put them in the category, I think, most helpful. Gospel issue and non-gospel issue. Those are the categories that we need to have. Gospel issue and non-gospel issue. The reality is we need to find a center in these dialogues that we have with one another. Is this a conscience issue? If so, it's an outlying issue. We need to get back to the gospel, the center, the cross It's a gospel issue. We need to start also at the foot of the cross with the assumption that we aren't in the center. We're struggling to find the center. We don't have all the answers, and so we're trying to find what are these primary issues. But we do know, the Bible is abundantly clear, and we've seen it in Revelation twice now, and we're going to continue to see it, that false teachers will come into the church. They will try to lead the church astray. Shepherds are called to protect the sheep and to kill the wolves. That's my job. I'm called by God and given the mandate by God to protect sheep and to destroy wolves. So the question is, what differentiates those two? Because wolves look like sheep a lot of the time, and some sheep look like wolves from far away. So how do we differentiate these two? Again, fundamental, essential, primary gospel issues, secondary issues. Let me, let me give you just a couple Just to to start thinking, we can't. This is another sermon for another time. But just to begin thinking about this Essentials, the gospel, not eschatology, right? Eschatology, study of end times. If somebody holds a position that we currently are in the millennial kingdom, or there is no such thing as the millennial kingdom, it's just the church age. We'll get into some of this when we get into Revelation 20. If somebody does not hold a position that we would hold at our church of a pre-millennial return of Jesus to establish a literal thousand-year reign uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, if somebody does not hold that, they still can be, and more than likely are, a brother or sister in Christ. Amen? We don't know. We don't know the end times. They haven't happened yet. So let's hold that loosely. That's a secondary, even a tertiary issue. That's not a primary issue. Now, there are aspects about the end times, about eschatology, that absolutely change the way we study the Bible. So it is important, but here's, the: I think, the biggest thing that we need to understand as a church, especially in our circles, not all truth is equally important. Not all truth is equally important. And and I, I believe, if you look back in church history... You'll see people that got this wrong. You'll see people uh, like John Calvin, huge, huge man of of the faith, and, and praise God for what he did. But it seems like, if you go back in church history, it seems like one of Calvin's friends said that he wanted to kill a man for not agreeing with the form of baptism that Calvin believed and preached. And it seems, again, there's a little bit of fuzziness to this, but it seems in church history that Calvin didn't really defend that, uh, defend his friend to say, you shouldn't be doing that. Calvin kind of said, yeah, he should die. And a man, his last name was Servetus, he was burned at the stake as a heretic for not agreeing with the form of baptism that John Calvin believed in. Now, I don't know if John Calvin himself would say this is right to do, but he definitely didn't step in and say, this is wrong, we shouldn't be doing this. That's when non-essentials become essentials. That's when all truth is equally important. All truth is important, but not equally so. What about the nature of Jesus? The nature of Jesus. Mm, Maybe... Maybe he was only human. Maybe he wasn't God. Is that primary doctrine? Is that essential? Is that gospel? Or is that secondary? We can agree to disagree. What is it? That's primary. You cannot get the person and work of Jesus Christ incorrect and still be saved. And that's a good way to ask the question. Can you be doing this or believing this and be saved? Can you preach this to others? They follow your preaching and still be saved. And if the answer is yes, they can still be saved, then it's probably not, uh, it either you're getting the gospel right or it's a non-gospel issue. Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Uh, can you believe in the current gift, speaking in tongues is still current for today in uh, the format of a heavenly prayer language? Can you believe that that is in existence today or that healing and prophecy is in existence today? Can you believe that, hold to that, maybe even practice that and still be saved? the answer is absolutely, amen and amen, though we might not agree with that. And even at our church, there are people, and this is the beauty of what we have in our church membership. In our church membership, we have a document that has, it's called the Statement of Faith. There's a document that says, these are the essentials. You cannot differ on these things and still be saved. So do you agree with what the gospel says? And it's a very pregnant document with verses and footnotes all throughout. This is the gospel. Can you uh, do you believe this? Do you agree with this? Yes, no. That's the, the very beginning of church membership. But then we have a, a number of items that we call distinctives or or uh, positions of Christ's Bible Church that you don't have to agree with or even adhere to or believe, but you can still be a member because they are secondary issues. Some of those things, expository preaching. We preach in an expositional fashion. Uh, uh, sign gifts having ceased today. Um, Uh, literal six-day creation, 24-hour, six-day creation. These are all things that we need to be very careful to point the finger at somebody with intolerance and say heretic. We have to be careful. So, inerrancy of Scripture, Trinity, Jesus alone for salvation, literal hell, those are in the essential category. And and I, I will die on that hill, absolutely. And if anybody in our church says, I don't agree with that, or I don't live according to that, that is something to not tolerate and to plead with them to repent. But speaking in tongues, mode of government in a church, mode of baptism, those are things that are not the essential category. So let me give you three cautions and then give you three ways in which to live this out. So three cautions. Number one, be careful of people who find something wrong with everyone. <laughs> be careful of people who find something wrong with everyone. And if you're that person, be careful of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> These are people, some people will have what's called a discernment ministry. <laughs> and they're online and they don't talk to anybody except through Twitter and Facebook. And they just want to point the finger at everybody where they're wrong. Be careful of that. Be careful of of being excited about just pointing the finger at everybody who's wrong. They're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. Secondly, that leads to be careful of hyper-separationism. I don't even know if that's a word, but be careful of hyper-separationism. Be careful of making your own camp that says, these are all of the things that I believe. All truth is equally important. It's all fundamentally essential truth. And therefore, you must agree with every single aspect of what I believe or else you can't be in my camp. You do that, and you find that you're in a camp with maybe one other person, you know, in Uganda somewhere. That's it. And you're never going to talk with them. You're never going to hang out. Nobody else agrees with everything. I mean, even if we were to ask each other today, what do we agree? What do we believe? What do we see the Bible saying? We would probably have very different opinions. So beware of hyper-separationism. Of pointing the finger and saying heretic to every single person who might disagree with what you think The Bible's saying. That's where I believe we should be tolerant. I can absolutely disagree with somebody, think that they're wrong, and still be friends with them and claim that they're my brother and sister in Christ and we enjoy fellowship. Might completely disagree on a big issue, but if it's not an essential issue, then it's okay. Does this make sense? Number three, be careful of defining yourself by what you are against. Be careful of defining yourself by what you are against. For a preacher, this looks like not correcting imbalanced doctrine with imbalanced preaching. If somebody has a view and you think it's a little too far over this direction, relationally, don't try to correct them by imbalanced discussion, imbalanced dialogue. Just speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. You don't need to manipulate or coerce or correct to pull them over. You don't need to imbalance your dialogue and conversation. Just speak the truth. And if it's a gospel issue, you speak the truth in love with urgency. If it's a non-gospel issue, you're just you're very careful about making sure this doesn't divide, making sure this doesn't cause a rift in your relationship with another believer. So be careful of defining yourself by what you are against. Let's be, let's be defined by what we are for. Obviously, it will enable an aspect of therefore we are against these things. So I know that. But let's preach loudly what we are for, who Christ is, what he has accomplished, and not what we are against. Now, what does it look like if somebody is in the camp of essentials They are disagreeing. They are, uh, as this person was, this Jezebel and the people following, they thought, you don't have to repent. Repentance isn't a thing. You don't need to worry about repentance. You can live like the world, you can enjoy the world, and you can be a Christian. Those two coexist perfectly fine together. That's in the essential category. You cannot live loving the very thing that Jesus died to free you from. You can't do that. If you want to be a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, you need to repent, you need to turn from sin. So what do you do then? So we have the be careful in the intolerance camp. We have to be careful to be tolerant, not intolerant. Now, how do we confront? How do we go about if if Jesus were to give us some steps in the church in Thyatira to go to this woman and to speak to her, or to speak to the people, how do you do this? Three ways. Number 1, Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. Examine yourself and go in humility. Examine yourself first and go in humility. You could also put Matthew 7 in this where uh, don't, don't go to somebody to take the log out of their eye uh, or to take the speck out of their eye if you have a log in your eye. Examine yourself first. Judge yourself first. So specifically in the area of, of Jezebel, idolatry and immorality, examine yourself first. Maybe you're not bowing down to a god, to a deity, to some sculpted being. But examine yourself. What rules and reigns in your heart? And you can go to somebody bearing their burden with them, saying, Okay, I struggle with idolatry too. And here are the ways. Go with humility. Bear their burden in humility. Number two is uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. Again, this is another sermon for another time, and I wish we had more time, but this is another sermon for another time. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. Pray in your going to that person. 1 John chapter 5 is very interesting section that talks about sin leading to death, sin that doesn't lead to death, and in the sin that doesn't lead to death, you want to be praying that God would graciously enable them and you to have dialogues to to free them from it. So you need to go, but you need to go in a spirit of humility and in a spirit of praying, asking God to open doors. And I know that many of you have done that. Many of you have have come to me, you've talked about situations that you have with people outside of church, and what do I do? How do I go? And I say, pray, pray for God to open a door. And And it'll happen for you. Many of you have told me these stories where you're praying, you're praying, God, give me an open door, God, give me an opportunity, and you never see one coming. And Then all of a sudden, you're at work and everybody's out sick and and the person says, hey, can I ask you a question? They totally open their heart for you and you're able to speak to them. That's the Holy Spirit moving in that moment, so pray. Finally, number three, James chapter five, verses 19 through 20. James chapter five, verses 19 through 20. First, examine yourself and go in humility. Number two, pray as you go to confront. And number three, James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Plead with them to repent and turn. Plead with them to repent and to turn. I mean, this is Matthew 18. We could go there again. This is another sermon for another time. But remember, this is an issue. If you go back, go back to our text in Revelation chapter 2. Side note done. Go back to our text here. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent. I've given her ample time to repent. But she does not want to repent. It's not that she can't. It's not that she has been sovereignly ordained to not. It's just she has no desire. It's an issue of desire. It's an issue of satisfaction. She thinks that she'll be satisfied in sin... And other people that are following her think they'll be satisfied in sin. So our job is to go lovingly plead with people. Number one, this is sinful and wrong, and it does bring judgment. But number two, there's greater satisfaction to be enjoyed. I get why you enjoy sin, because sin is pleasurable for a season, but in the end it brings forth death. So I get the satisfaction, but you need to understand, Jeremiah chapter 2, this satisfaction is the broken cistern that doesn't hold water. It's barely a satisfaction, and there's living waters, a fountain of living waters that's standing right next to you that you can enjoy and be satisfied and encouraged others to be satisfied in. So you're pleading with that. You're not just saying, you're wrong, fix it. It's an issue of affection. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of, is Jesus better than sin? That's why our mission statement as a church is to shepherd people to value Christ more than anything else in this world. I I want every single person to love Him. And if you're a Christian, you're in that fight to love Christ more than you love sin. If you're not a Christian, that fight is pretty alien to you. You don't really understand that fight because you kind of think Jesus is okay, but but you kind of think you're not doing anything that bad in, in your sin. And that's why the Gospel says, no, 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 wake up, sin brings death. But Jesus satisfies both eternally and in this life. My greatest desire in preaching is that if you are in sin, if you are struggling through habitual sin in your life, that, that maybe even this sermon would change you, would confront you, would help you see it's an issue of what you love the most. It's an issue of satisfaction. And that this sermon would be used by God to radically alter your life and put you on a path of satisfaction in Christ alone. Now, unfortunately, the reality is that some people maybe even in this room, will never change, just like Jezebel. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to, and she's not going to change. And that leads us to number five in our outline. We've seen a greeting, we've seen a a description of Christ, a declaration of what he knows, uh, a criticism, and now number five, a warning. Five, six, and seven warning, uh, promise and exhortation. A warning. The warning is very clear. You could put it in two simple little phrases. Judgment is coming but repentance is possible. That's the warning that Jesus has for this church. Judgment is coming, but repentance is possible. Unfortunately, God's warnings do expire. There comes a point when, though God has given plenty of time for people to change and to repent, they just simply choose not to. This is Psalm chapter 32. You could just write that down, Psalm 32, where David says, uh, day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me when I kept silent about my sin. My body wasted away as in the fever heat of the summer. And then he says, therefore, he, he talks about forsaking a sin and finding satisfaction in God and, and the joy of forgiveness, the joy of repentance. And then he says, therefore, learn from me, seek the Lord in a time when he may be found. Seek God now because there is coming a time when he will not be found. You seek him and you will not find him. Seek him now. Seek him now. The warning. Verse 22. Behold, because she is not repenting and those with her, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Literally just a bed. I'll throw her on a bed. Her main act of uh, sin here is sexual immorality. So I'm going to I'm going to let her, this is kind of a Romans 1 aspect of I'm going to give her to her own devices. If that's what she's involved in, I pleaded with her to change, I pleaded with her to turn. If she doesn't want to, I will let her stay involved in that. And I'm going to let other people who commit adultery with her be involved in that. And then I will throw them all into a great tribulation unless they repent. Brothers and sisters, you need to underline that or circle that. If you mark up your Bible, unless they repent he literally just said i've given her time and she doesn't she didn't repent she hasn't repented she's not repenting and then he says i'm going to i'm going to judge her unless she repents meaning what there's still time judgment is coming but repentance is possible seek the lord in a time when he may be found i don't know if there's a time in this life when he may not be found maybe there is i know for sure that he will not be found In death, after you die, if you have not sought the Lord for forgiveness and salvation in this life, if you die in unrepentant sin, the the time for seeking the Lord and being saved by Him is over. So seek the Lord now. There is still time to repent while you still have breath. Verse 23 continues the warning, I will kill her children with the pestilence, with the sickness, or literally with death, And the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and the minds. They will know. Jesus says, I know everything that they're doing. I see their mind. I see their mind played out like a movie before me. I see what they want. And I want the church to know that. Remember, eyes of fire going through the, the church, feet of burnished bronze. I want them to know. And so this judgment will enact knowledge of God's holiness and His sovereignty. This is why Acts chapter 5 is so crucial. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about giving money to the church and property that they sold and they got money and they gave some money to the church and they lie about a figure. They lie about a number of money, an amount. And God strikes both of them dead instantly. We think, well, this seems categorically worse sin to be Jezebel, to be bringing people into immorality and idolatry. This seems categorically worse. Why did God just strike them dead telling a lie? It's the same reason, so that the church would know, I am he who searches the hearts and the minds. I am he who knows, and I bring holiness and judgment for those who are not pursuing it. Charles Spurgeon says this, do you you not know that God can read what is written on the rocks at the bottom of the ocean, even though 10,000s of fathoms of dark water roll above them? I tell you that he can read every word that is in your mouth. He knows every thought, every imagination, every conception. Yes, every unformed imagination and thought scarce shot from the bow, reserved in the quiver of the mind. He sees it all, every particle, every atom of it. He sees it all. He sees it all. And then he says at the end of verse 23, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. I see what you're doing and I will judge you accordingly. I see what you're doing, and I will judge you accordingly. Verse 24, what's the church supposed to do that isn't being tolerant of this immorality and idolatry? But I say to you, the rest of you who are on Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, you have not known the deep things of Satan, that's probably something that uh, this woman was saying as the prophetess, in you know, air quotes, she's going around saying, I know deeper things, hidden things of God, and... and Jesus says, no, they're actually deep things of Satan. This is a a sinful pattern, a sinful lifestyle that does not save. This isn't deeper knowledge in the Word of God. I place no other burden on you. I place no other burden on you. Keep clinging to truth. Do not be tolerant of anything that goes against that essential category. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Don't stop holding on. Don't release your grip on me. Cling tightly to me. That brings us number six to the promise. The promise. And there's really three promises inside of this. Verses 26 through 28 gives us three amazing promises. Verse 26 He who overcomes, again, there's our Greek word, uh, Niko, I mean, uh, where we get Nike from, the overcomer, the victor, the conqueror, the one who has won and defeated his enemy, the one who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end. Again, clinging tightly until the end. To him, promise number one, I will give authority over the nations. I will give authority over the nations. You can see in your Bible that's probably in all capital letters. That's a quotation from the Old Testament, specifically from Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm that says that Jesus Christ is going to be the one that is going to rule and reign over the nations. But here in Revelation 2, Jesus says, you're going to reign with me. You're going to rule and reign with me. All all of these things, end of verse 27, I have received authority from my Father. I've received the authority, and I'm giving it also to you. So you're going to, number one, promise number one, you are going to be given authority over the nations. You're going to rule and reign with Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. And it's very interesting because if you go to Psalm 2, in Psalm 2, There's a reference to the Messiah being the Son of God. I have called you my Son. Today I have begotten you. I have called you my Son. Which is why, back up at the very beginning of this letter, he says, I am the Son of God. I am the Son of God who has eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze. I am the Son of God. That title would be ringing in their ears, and when they hear this quotation from Psalm 2, they would finish it out. Wait, that is a promise that's only given to God's Son, to the Messiah Himself, and yet He's allowing us in on that promise. How do we get that promise? How do we get to rule and reign with Christ? That's amazing. Promise number two. We'll answer that question shortly. Promise number two. We are given judgment over the nations. So we get to rule in authority over the nations, and we get to judge the nations. We rule in the millennial kingdom, we judge in the millennial kingdom. Verse 27, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Literally in the text, it's He shall shepherd them with a rod of iron. Just think about this perfect example here. Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira, take up a defense against the attackers who are coming after your sheep. Don't tolerate the wolves beat them down, get them away. Do whatever is necessary to destroy the wolves and protect the sheep. And here in this promise, he says, I will give you a rod of iron to shepherd the nations. If you do it on a small scale in the church, you're faithful in the little of defending the sheep, protecting them and getting the wolves away. I'm gonna give you a rod of iron to do that on a national level, on a worldwide scale. You prove yourself faithful in the little, and I will give you uh, the ability to be faithful in the much. If you judge rightly now, in essence, Jesus is saying, then you'll judge them completely rightly then. So, you'll get a rod of iron. And with this rod of iron, you will shatter the vessels of potter, broken, smashed to pieces, conquered in judgment. Similar to the language of verse 23, killing the children with pestilence. Some people would say at this point, maybe a common objection would be, man, God sounds really mean. God sounds really mean. Shouldn't we just love people? And I would say two things. First of all, it is most loving to confront somebody in their sin before there is no more time to repent. We've talked about this before. It would not be loving for a doctor if he has a scan or an x-ray and he sees a lump on that x-ray, and he knows that that's a cancerous tumor, if he were to put that into the little backlit machine, he sees it, and he goes, "Uh, I love you too much. I'm not going to give you the bad news. That's that's not fun. Let's just enjoy. Merry Christmas today. Let's just enjoy. You're doing great. Takes the x-ray out, puts it in the folder. We'll see you next time. That's not a loving thing to do. We pay people to tell us bad news because the bad news helps us get to the good news. Therefore, number one, it is not an unloving thing of God to bring judgment, to help people see you need to repent now. It's not unloving. He's calling, saying what it is. We need to do the same thing. But number two, I would just say it this way. Don't make yourself more compassionate than God is. Don't make yourself more compassionate than God is. God has given this woman time to repent. And even in his judgment of her, he says, unless she repents, unless they repent, they can still repent. So God is incredibly gracious. And here, even in his judgment, there is grace so that everyone would know that he is the one who searches hearts and minds. Finally, the last promise. Not only do we get authority over the nations, judgment over the nations, but number three, Very strange, very interesting verse, verse 28. I will give him the morning star. The morning star. What is the morning star? Some connect the morning star with passages in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, that believers reflect God's glory. So we are the morning star. While Christians reflect Christ's glory, I don't think that that's what this means. For sake of time, just write down Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. John's going to use this again to describe Jesus. He is the bright and morning star. Uh, And this is a reference, I believe, goes all the way back in Numbers chapter 24 to a day, a prophecy, a promise that there would be a day when a star would rise out of Jacob to destroy God's enemies. What is the bright and morning star? It's just a picture of that last star that hangs on for dear life when the sun's coming up, right? There's that one star that you can still see. It's the last star. the sun's starting to come up and destroy all that beauty that the night had before, all the stars are going away. You can't see them, but there's that one that hangs on. Or to say it another way, flip it around to when the sun's going down, that first star that comes out, it's that star, But here, it's the bright morning star. It's the star in the morning that you can still see because it's more brilliant than any of the other stars. And that's a reference to Christ. So literally what Jesus says is, you're going to rule and reign with me, and if you overcome, I will give you myself. I will give you the bright morning star. I'll give you me. Because you fought against sin. You've clung to me. He's, he's asking them, nevertheless, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to me. And in the end, you'll just keep getting more of me. He promises himself, for those who refuse idolatry and cling to Christ, you will get Christ. And one day, this will cease to be a prayer and will be life itself in heaven. One day, the promise with Jesus, life with him in uninterrupted intimacy will come to pass. So what's the exhortation? Number seven, the exhortation, verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear. Hold fast. Don't let, your, let go of your grip on Christ. Sin is serious. It, is condem- it condemns us to die. It condemns us to hell. It fights for our satisfaction. It fights to say, I will satisfy your soul but Jesus alone satisfies. This letter reveals the seriousness of practicing and tolerating sin. It reveals that God will judge unrepentant sin in the church. It also reveals to us a pattern of obedience, marks a true believer, not perfection but progression, and that God's promise to his own people is that in spite of struggles with sin and error in the church, ultimately they will experience a time of fullness with Christ as they reign with Him in perfect intimacy. So, can I just ask three questions as we close? Number one, where do you need to repent? We all do. Where do you need to repent? Start with you. Start with me. Start with I. Start with here. Where do you need to repent? Secondly, who can you help in repentance? If they're in a category of essentials, and you see them going astray, James 5 would tell us, the one who turns somebody from the error of their ways brings salvation, saves them from hell. Do that with grace, with humility, with prayer. But do that. Where do you need to repent? How could you help somebody else in repentance? Gracious in confronting. But number three, and this is for all of us, every second of every day, savor Christ Christ as the all-satisfying treasure of your heart. If you want to fight sin, don't just stare at sin and say, no, 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 no. If you want to fight sin, stare at Christ and say yes to everything that He is for us. Turn really quickly to Psalm 103. We'll end here. Psalm 103. David wrote Psalm 32, which is where he said, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I wasn't confessing my sin. And then I did. So you too seek the Lord when he may be found. Rejoice in forgiveness. Jesus said to the church in Thyatira, I will give you according to your deeds. I will give you recompense according to your deeds. And if you're like me, you read that and you're terrified. I know my deeds. I don't want to be judged according to my deeds. And that's where Psalm 103, the same author that wrote Psalm 32, seek the Lord when he can be found wrote Psalm 103 and tells us, if you seek Him, what He will do. Verse 1, Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of His benefits. He pardons all of your iniquities. He heals all of your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. He performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He does the work. He performs the righteous deeds. He made his way known to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Yes, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says in the letter to Thyatira, I'm going to judge you on the basis of your deeds. If we were to be judged on the basis of our deeds, David will say elsewhere, who could stand? Who could stand if you recompensed according to my deeds? Who could stand? And that's why we love Christ. If you love Jesus, you know why these passages should soar in your heart with affection for Christ because he will not count your deeds against you because he has placed all of those unrighteous deeds, thrown them on Jesus. Jesus has performed all of the perfection that you and I need to get into heaven, but we can't do on our own. And he took all of our imperfection on the cross. He was judged on the cross as if he had lived our sinful lives so that as far as the east is from the west, as far as the bottom of the ocean floor, our sin is taken away. And therefore, when God the Father judges you and me, He does not see us according to our deeds because our deeds, praise God, have been destroyed. And Jesus' deeds are in our place. So He opens that folder, He looks into our account, and He just sees Jesus' perfection. He just sees Jesus' perfection. He says, I'm going to reward you according to your deeds. And that is good news. That we are blessed because of what Jesus has done. So, Repent, help others in repentance, but let's all go back to the center at the foot of the cross and savor Christ together, saying thank you for loving and for saving a wretch like me. Father, thank you for your grace. We want to enjoy it. We want to revel in it. We want to glory in it, not because of our abilities to save ourselves, but because of Christ and his amazing love. Help us to savor Christ even now as we respond in song.